Jay Grieve, good evening, and you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. COP27 comes to an end this evening after nearly two weeks of intensive international meetings on issues of environmental care. In the studio this evening are the authors of a new book that tries to figure out how these discussions on an international stage impact all of us at a local level and what we can do about it. And in a few moments, we'll also be joined on the line from Seattle by Catherine Wolfe, who, after living her vocation as a teacher, social worker and chaplain, has just published a book called Beyond How Humankind Thinks About Heaven. But first, I'm joined in the studio by Dr Kevin Hargaden, who's the director and social theologian of the Jesuit Centre for Faith and Justice in Dublin, and Dr. Kira Murphy, who's the environmental justice advocate there. They've just seen the publication of their co-authored book, The Parish as Oasis, an introduction to environmental care. Kira and Kevin, you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. One of the striking features of your book is that the environmental crisis isn't mentioned until the final chapter. Unlike many approaches, your book doesn't start with warnings of catastrophe and calls to panic or a sort of apocalyptic approach. Instead, it's very pragmatic, but softly, softly. Do you think that's a better way to tackle environmental care? I think there's probably many different ways, but I think you do need... You do need to include everyone. I think this is one approach that kind of works with a lot of people. Because I think one of the the things about this book is a lot of the examples that we use as good environmental care didn't start off with concern for the environment. It started off with other concerns. So I think for... Like. Yeah, for one of the examples would be um, encouraging kids to cycle and walk to school in a, in a school in Galway. And the main issue there wasn't emissions it wasn't uh, CO2 it was how stressful it was to drop the kids off at the door so by reducing the stress figuring out a way of reducing the chaotic stress of dropping kids off at the school door in this particularly awkward site meant that kids were empowered to walk and cycle to school so it's environmental care has many I suppose parallel benefits which work quite well and this book kind of taps into the parallel benefits I suppose. In an example like like that um, that's a very different approach to frightening people isn't it? Yeah there, there's there's plenty of evidence to frighten people <laughs> um, and we know that it, it, it can be paralyzing and it's like I can't do anything nothing that I do will make a difference and I think finding the hope and and guiding people towards where they can make an impact is is really important. There's loads of roles, I suppose, that we can kind of take up and there's, lo- there's lots of work to do. <laughs> One of the most common conversations Kira and I have with people is uh, they maybe come and hear us talk or give a presentation and they say, it, it's really fascinating. I'm really passionate about this topic, but I don't know what to do. In fact, Kira had this conversation just last night with somebody 
And uh, our answer to that is always to say, do one thing. I mean, this book is full of experiments, but but we know uh, you can give up red meat one more day a week. That little small act is spiritually significant for you and your soul. And it is a tiny drop in the ocean in terms of the, the major crisis that we're facing, but it's significant and it's still a drop. But what we really need is for communities of individuals to get together who are passionate about this, this topic and willing to make changes and push for change. And faith communities, parishes, churches, whatever you want to call them, they are such groups. And uh, then that that community group action is the means by which in this republic we're able to uh, to bring about systemic change. And the systemic change makes it so much easier for everybody to know what to do. Um, so we think that there's a, a clear connection between that individual impulse to do something channeled communally, collectively with your friends, can have a profound impact. Um, the the classic example of this is in the Netherlands, where they had massive uh, death rates in the 1970s based around motor accidents. And in the middle of the night, concerned parents went out with paint and they painted on the roads, cycle lanes. Uh, It was called kinder slaughter. Uh, stop the kinder mord. Yeah. yeah. So stop stop the, the kinder killing. And they these are acts of vandalism. And that's the source of the tr- dramatic transformation that's occurred in the Netherlands. That, you know, it's the envy of the world in terms of its active mobility. That began from uh, communities of people expressing their individual desires collectively. Um, the, the politicians want to get re-elected. And if they know that there's 50 people in the county who are really agitated about this, they're going to listen. So we think there's a direct connection and the church can act institutionally, but we're much more interested in local parishes taking back power. Uh, not that the bishops are holding the power, but the state is holding the power and, um, and, and, and doing experiments, as we say in the book. So tell us about more of those experiments. There are, there are 20, and then often you get a couple for your money <laughs> within, within the 20 chapters, each, each of which is entitled to experiments. Maybe Love the Sun. Yeah, well, uh, well um, this began, we were thinking about how many churches in Ireland, church buildings we mean, have big massive roofs and we've never seen solar panels on them at all. And our classic example of the transformative impact that solar panels can have is a school district in Arkansas, rural Arkansas in the middle of America, very remote place, and their school system was truly awful uh, in the bottom, bottom, bottom of the national uh, ratings and it was running a $250,000 deficit every year and they committed to building uh, 1,500 solar panels around the school campus. They took over one of the sports fields and everywhere they could put a solar panel they put a solar panel and now they're running a $1.2 million surplus. Uh, they've employed 96 more teachers. The teachers are the best paid teachers in the state and that school district is going to spill over with all kinds of social benefits for the entire town and region. Now, we don't have the same amount of sun as, we, as Arkansas does, but Ireland actually does, even though we don't, uh, <laughs> we don't see it in our towns, Ireland gets plenty of sunlight hours and solar panels, uh, one of the great technological advancements of the last 10 years, that's a real encouragement to environmentalists, is the price collapse in solar. So it's come down kind of 500% in the last 10 years. So it's well within reach of pretty much every parish to be able to afford this because it starts to pay back itself immediately. So uh, in terms of loving the sun, we would encourage right now, like the parish councils and parishes around the country to seriously consider whether or not this is something that they can they can start developing. 
And Kira, one of Kira's favourite uh, experiments in the book is a church in Monaghan uh, that took this thinking to the nth degree. Yeah, there's a church in Monaghan in Clontibret, I think, parish. And they, they decided to do up the church, but it wasn't, again, it wasn't because they wanted to be more and more environmentally friendly. That wasn't the motivating reason. The reason was because the walls were very damp. There was a lot of mould. The church was falling apart. And this was, um, I think it was about a 140-year-old church. Yeah, yeah. And I think in the 60s, it had been re- redone and replastered. And they'd done such a job that they basically destroyed the, the permeability of the, the building. It, it became very damp, basically. And a group of parishioners kind of got together and decided that they were going to completely renovate the building. And they installed a geothermal renewable energy underground heating. And they're now able to heat the entire building for a fraction of the cost. No emissions. It's just a small amount of electricity is used. And it is at a constantly comfortable temperature. And as they were renovating the building, they... They had to dig up the floor because to put in the underground building and they uncovered this beautiful mosaic of tiles. So they've been completely restored now as well. So what was a a very dilapidated, unpleasant building is now basically a carbon neutral building, which is very comfortable and is, is lovely and has brought the community together to do so much work. Like all of this was powered by volunteer work and by fundraising themselves they've been rewarded by they this have been beautiful <laughs> yeah it's, beautiful floor uh, yeah it, it's one of those examples that's just really heartening so you draw on this fantastic image and there's a, a literal image of it on on the back cover of the book and it's startling of an uh, of a church as an oasis in a desiccated landscape there's this little circle surrounded by a big circle of trees and you can see the color of it and imagine the the bird life and the creatures and the shade as you as you say for the people but when we think of um the parish as oasis in the irish context we might be looking more at parched earth if we read the papers this morning with huge renewed disillusionment and disgust at the crimes and the cover-ups uh, regarding sexual abuse and um, and covering them up. Um, so who are you appealing to? Because the people who used to be in these parishes are very often no longer there. Um, I think it's important to begin by saying that we don't see this book as a kind of retreat into a fantasy vision of what might be. It's a direct response to attending to the newspapers and much more deeper than that, attending to the suffering of the victims. And how do you go on being a Christian when you inherit this as as your legacy? You know, the the, the church has, has left these... I mean, society hasn't become a desert. The church has become a desert. So the parish is more like a desert than an oasis. And we want to uh, propose a patient and very slow-burning response to that, that recognises that we're in an exile, that we brought upon ourselves with the crimes that were committed and the cover-ups that were committed and the cover-ups that continue. So in that barren land, the call isn't to try to find a way to go back to a place of influence, but it is to, to tend to the 
to the space within the culture and the society that we have now. So who are we appealing to? We're appealing to the people who, who are still struggling on with some kind of faith uh, in the face of all of this compromise and this uh, tragedy. And we, we recognise that largely in Ireland, the faithful, the church has not listened. Uh, the synodal, the first synodal response within the Catholic Church, uh, there were 26 responses and then there were a couple more. Not one single response mentioned the environment. So we would like to think that we were preaching to the converted and that we had the grounds for optimism. We do not. Uh, we're preaching to the unconverted, I think. Uh, we, would, we will go and visit every parish community that invites us and we will try and unfold with them how this can work, um, how you can think about caring for the common home as a means to enact the, the kernel of the gospel. There are relatively small numbers in parishes, though, aren't there? Um, I mean, relatively small compared to the past. When you know, In the 1970s, we had like 92% of people regularly attending church. We still have a million people regularly showing up on a Sunday morning, which is still you know, uh, three, four times higher than continental Europe. Um, there's still more children attending church regularly than there are going to the GAA. There's lots of muscle left in the church. There's lots of people who want a, a way of going forward in their faith that uh, acknowledges the past and goes in a different direction for the future. All of the experiments that we have in the book are basically relational because what we're arguing is that that grassroots activity is generated by love. It's not generated by fear. It's not generated by dread. It's generated by the love that you have for the place you're in. You love your town. You love your neighbours. You love the birds that you meet in the trees. You, you have great uh, affection for these places and these people and you want to care for them. And that's the connection for us between theology and ecology um, isn't in terms of commands that you have to respond to. It's in terms of the magnetic pull of the love that you already have. Dr Kevin Hogan and Dr. Kira Murphy, authors of The Parish as Oasis, An Introduction to Environmental Care. Thank you very much for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you. Thank you. And now I'm delighted to be joined by Catherine Wolfe, author of Beyond, How Humankind Thinks About Heaven. Catherine Wolfe, you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. It's lovely to be here. So, Catherine, this book is about what we might call the afterlife, life mm. beyond our mortal life. Mm -hmm. When did you first become aware of the possibility of life beyond? At what age and what did you think about it? <laughs> well, uh, I, I was born into a German-Irish Catholic family in San Francisco and the culture was very, um, it was just imbued with Catholicism. So I had the standard notions um, of what, you know, heaven would be great. There'd be angels and puffy clouds and, and lots of, of, of songs. And God, I guess God would be there too. Um, and that's, you know, that's a kind of child's view of heaven. But I think <laughs> I think I kept hold of it for, probably for too long because I never really reconsidered it much. Um, when I was uh, 12 and 13, though, I had to uh, spend a 
year in a body cast um, because my spine needed to be fused and I had some mobility, but it was, it was rough. And I think it was during that time um, that I just had to become um, uh, more sort of aware of where I could go in my mind if I couldn't go there in my body. Um, and so I think that sort of gave birth, that experience gave birth to a curiosity to, to what life, uh, how far life really goes, whether it's limited to where we are in the here and now in our bodies or whether we really uh, um, are destined for a sort of other kinds kinds of life's life after this or whether we it's whether it's possible as with the the religious mystics to actually sort of travel beyond from this life and that's a that's a, a tradition that pops up in almost every religious tradition that I studied um, was that there was a traveler who went beyond and so that made it easy for me to sort of pursue because they have wonderful stories Many children who who have an injury that puts that immobilizes them mm -hmm. when they're children develop mm -hmm. amazing imaginations. I'm struck mm -hmm. how many people who have become artists and writers have had a profound yeah. experience of immobility as a child. Yeah. And you say in the book, the history of belief in heaven or hell or transcendence is the history of our imaginings about it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> And I can't. I can't write the exact history for all the obvious reasons. But you know, collectively, we humans, from the time uh, time when we were living in the caves to now, we have just had this sense uh, that there's more out there, and we keep searching for it. It's just something that has not lost its its hold on us. And even now, when you have people pursuing out of body experience, and you hear of near death experiences. Um, it, these may not be packaged in religion the way that they have been through the millennia, um, but they demonstrate that that sort of yearning is still very much part of our nature. And I'm, I came to be convinced as I read about all these efforts, all these travels, um, that there must be something out there that is beckoning us. So the ancient peoples, and I mean tens of thousands of years ago, mm -hmm. uh, you recount in your book about how they had, their art implies that they had met or had imagined or um, had a strong communal sense, an agreed sense, not just one person's mad mm -hmm. wanderings, mm -hmm. but an agreed sense of, mm -hmm. you know, like in Lescaux in France, there's there's a bird on a pole yes. up high and you talk about Native American, you know, particular visionary. Yes. You, you know, tell us, if you can, some examples of really ancient cultures and, and what they thought was beckoning. Well, it's hard to say what they thought was beckoning. What, what, you know, what their the art that exists that we can surmise something from um, ha, is usually the grave uh, art. The way that uh, bodies would be tattooed or decorated in certain ways that seem to point to some sort of tribal identity, to who they might have been in the life, but, but but all in preparation. And you've got grave goods in so many cultures, seeds and tools and things that are left in the grave. Well, why would they do that? 
who's going to who's going to be using those? They must think those people were thinking that those people who had passed away um, were going to be using those in some other life. How do we know how to interpret that? Because maybe <laughs> maybe they were just like the symbols that we in Ireland bring up at funerals today. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. to go on the coffin as a sign of the things that mattered to this person during life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we can't. We can't say for sure, can we? Because there are no texts left from those extremely ancient cultures. Then you get to, when you get to Egypt, um, there are what they call the wisdom texts, and they talk about the gods and, and, the, and the possibilities for future life. And, um, and even uh, kind of as, as Egypt sort of matured as a culture, even the fact that there might be sort of consequences for how we behave on earth and that that would determine um, how, you know, how we fared in the afterlife. And that, that's, a, that's an enormous development in, in human history, um, I believe, that, that people would look at the universe as a kind of moral universe where what we do has consequences not only for the universe but for ourselves and for wherever, if we have life beyond, uh, that our behavior in this life will impact that for good or for ill. That is still a very typical feature of several of today's religions, isn't it? That oh, that, oh yes, that absolutely. What we do here absolutely. has a direct consequence for our fate, if you like. In oh, in absolutely, what comes next. And, and even if you look at, I mean, in all religions, really, um, in, if you look at Buddhism, however, you might not, you know, they don't obviously they can't describe what the union with the ultimate being can be like, um, but certainly the path there uh, to nirvana, to, uh, you know, to, to, to rest in the kind of world soul, the path there has everything to do uh, with, with how you live your lives uh, on the way there. Of course, they, they believe in reincarnation, but, that, that, but your path depends on uh, what you do in those lives. And so that too uh, expresses a kind of sense that your your moral behavior um, impacts whether you're able to really get to your final destination or not. And of course, in Hinduism, you you might, on your way, take the form of many different um, <laughs> beings, and you know. So it's not just yes, a question of afterlife, but afterlives, right? Yes, very different lives, very different realms. And and the disappointing thing to me that I found out was that even if you're a very good person, it doesn't mean that in the next life you're just going to get a little bit of a better life and then a little bit of a better life. You could, you know, you could go back and become a frog after having been an exemplary human being. It's it's the karma that you accrue over many, many lifetimes um, that propels you forward uh, on your path. It doesn't it, it's, it, but it can be, you know, two steps forward, three steps back kind of thing. Thinking of the the three, what they call Abrahamic religions, Christianity, uh-huh. Judaism and Islam, the similarities between these faiths are, are so important for us to know about and to, mm-hmm. you know, increase understanding between what we all have in common. There are subtle differences which are really interesting too, aren't there? Like, for example, Judaism has Sheol, hell, much less emphasis on heaven as a place in the way that the Christians do. That's right. 
That's right. And shale, you know, that was something that was, in Jesus's time, was a notion, kind of a grim, misty, dark place where souls just sort of went and floated around. It's kind of, kind of sounds a little bit more like the Greek and Roman uh, uh, and, and Zoroastrian hells, you know, just not much there at all. Um, they were, you know, still working on this idea of what it, it might be like. Um, but it, but I, what it would delighted me in interviewing people, and I interviewed dozens, um, when I was interviewing the Jews was how they would just laugh and say, you're never going to find any of us agreeing exactly on what this is about. In fact, uh, the rabbi that I know here um, on campus where I live, she said, she laughed when I went in to ask her. She said, Catherine, I never even knew about heaven until I went to rabbinic school. She's a reformed Jew, and they have a much different idea about escorting the dead to whatever is beyond, but they don't really go very far in imagining what that might be like. And the Jewish tradition really is very rich. It's it's impossible to say, um, to, to kind of chart a through line uh, through the ages as to how the doctrine developed. There really is no doctrine. It's not like it is in Christianity or in Islam where they're both very well developed. Thinking of Christianity, it tends to think of heaven as where God lives, you know, like our Father who art in heaven, um, with uh -huh. a, a strong imagination that it's God's home. And then this becomes quite hard to square with the incarnation, the God with us, that Christianity also teaches. Um, how do Christians navigate that tension? <laughs> you've really gotten to the heart of the matter. Um, and if I ever write another book, this is going to be something that I want to explore. Um, this whole sense that we're not in heaven yet. It's not yet. It's coming down the road when we die, if we're lucky. But to some extent, we are, we are already in the kingdom because Jesus preached the kingdom of God. The kingdom had already arrived. It's already here on earth to some extent. And so you've hit the heart. That's a real paradox. It's a tension. It's a paradox. It's something that the um, that for most people is very hard to understand. Uh, what kind of cracked it open for me, um, and I have to tell you, I'm a very pragmatic person. I was a social worker and a therapist and a teacher in my life. Um, but what cracked it open for me was the experience of the mystics. And not just the mystics in Christianity, the mystics in in Islam as well. The Suf, the whole Sufi uh, form of Islam is 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 a highly mystical um, uh, kind of endeavor to bring the kind of presence of God to acknowledge it in their lives as they are um, living right here. And so I, the key to that, I think, is is in mystical experience. And like I say, maybe that'll be my next book. <laughs> I hope so. Catherine Wolfe, author of Beyond, How Humankind Thinks About Heaven. Thank you very much for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. The Leap of Faith is presented by Siobhan Garrigan, the researcher is Sinead Kennedy, broadcast coordinator is Jarlath Holland, and the producer is Sheila O'Callaghan. And remember, you can always email the programme at faith at rte.ie.